This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. The art of charm is where ordinary guys become extraordinary men. Welcome to the Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger. The Art of Charm brings together the best minds in the industry to teach you guys how to crush it in life, love, and at work. Imagine having an experienced mix of mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum. We've created one of the premier men's lifestyle programs available anywhere, and it's free. This is the show we wish we had a decade ago. Now, this show, as always, is about you and we're here to help you become the best man you can be in every area of your life. If you're new to the show, but you wanna know more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, check out The Art of Charm Toolbox at theartofcharmpodcast.com slash toolbox. That's where we've got a lot of the fundamentals of dating, attraction, body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, relationship management, breakups, a lot of stuff that's more important than people think. And we've got our live programs running here every single week in Hollywood, California. Details on that at theartofcharm.com or give us a call here in the office at 888 888- 413-7177. You can email me, jordan at theartofcharm.com. Looking forward to meeting all of you guys here in LA at The Art of Charm. Now today, we're gonna be talking with my friend, Dr. Jeff Miller. He's an evolutionary psychologist. He's also writing a book with my friend, Tucker Max. Today, we're gonna talk about how The Art of Charm is often ahead of science, as stated by a real scientist. Body types of guys that are more attractive to women, reading ovulatory cycles for fun and profit, or maybe just for fun, A scientific decision, of course, on which shoes to wear on a first date because we need science for that. And and last but not least, the key role of language in human courtship, its importance in online dating, texting, messaging, and how to be more interesting. In a nutshell, enjoy this one, Dr. Jeff Miller. So tell us a little bit about who you are. I don't like to do the, the bio read, so I would like to hear from you the important parts of your life, so I'm not talking about how you enjoy long walks on the beach and tennis. Yeah, I'm I'm so sentimental. Well, so I'm Jeffrey Miller. I'm an evolutionary psychology professor at University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. I've been here about 13 years, and I do a lot of research on all kinds of topics about human nature, sexuality, mate choice, human emotions, intelligence, creativity, and all sorts of topics. And I'm basically fascinated by female psychology and why women choose the guys that they do and how that has roots in ancient prehistory. Excellent. So evolutionary psychology, tell us what that is because I know a lot of people are like, oh, cool. And a lot of people are like, I think I've heard of that. Yeah. Evolutionary psychology is basically the study of human nature. And we try to understand people's um, instincts, beliefs, desires, preferences by thinking about prehistory, how our ancestors used to survive and find mates and raise their kids and make a living, um, basically in, in prehistoric Africa before humans migrated, some humans migrated out of there. And so we think a lot about, you know, how do you get food and avoid predators and avoid parasites and disease and make friends and allies and live in groups and Um, court and fall in love and deal with conflict and um, take care of your kids and your relatives. And we uh, then translate that using modern psychology research methods to figure out um, sort of what's common across all humans everywhere. Nice. And, And that's great because a lot of people will argue, and I used to get a lot of email like this, and I still sort of do sometimes, 
somebody will write in from another country and go, I really want to take your live program, but you know, I live in China or I live in Europe and I think things might be different here and I'm worried that things are going to be so different that what I learn at the Art of Charm is not going to work and I'll have wasted my money unless I move to America. And I, and I always have to explain, like, no, this is attraction. This is as primal as it gets. I mean, this is something that is across biology. You don't need even language to be able to do this stuff. And frankly, if it doesn't work in your area, it's not because you're it's not because there's something wrong with the skill set or, or the, the knowledge that you're using. It's because you're not doing it right. Because we all know that there's examples throughout history and especially in modern times where we're very attracted to people that we never talk to, uh, let alone could we talk to them. You can watch movies. You don't know those people. You can travel to another country and people can be fascinated with you. And there's all kinds of tiny little cues that that work across cultures, and it's not just about appearance. It's about especially things on the show, vocal tonality, eye contact, the way you sit, stand, walk, talk, and there's a million studies now coming out, and I'm sure that you've seen this too, where science is sort of catching up, and, and probably does this in many fields, where science catches up to the anecdotal evidence, at least the stuff that happens to be correct, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, you see this a lot in sort of advice to men on dating, that a lot of what your other podcast guests will talk about or what you teach in you know the art of charm workshops is in advance of what we psychologists have studied yet and there's pros and cons to that you know the advantage for me as a scientist is i can get a lot of inspiration from listening you know to your podcasts or what you know people in the manosphere are doing or pickup artist people or anybody else concerned with mating they can inspire further research the downside is a lot of the claims that are made aren't really that fact-based right <laughs> yeah yeah you know some of them work for sure and your point's very well taken that the, the kind of stuff that you focus on you know voice pitch and timbre eye contact playfulness conversational skills sense of humor that stuff is absolutely universal you can go down like my anthropology colleagues and study the samane tribal people in bolivia and, you know, they basically fall in love pretty much like Americans or Chinese folks do. It's all the same verbal and nonverbal courtship skills. It's just, you know, manifest in slightly different ways. Sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think a lot of people are looking at, for example, the tips and techniques or whatever that they get or even practical things or mindsets, especially from the show, and we have a running joke on the show, well, congratulations, science, you're 1% closer to understanding what we teach at The Art of Charm, and we see that, and, and I know that uh, Tucker and I were joking about that as well, because a lot of times you'll see an article like, surprisingly, women prefer men who take a leadership role, and it's like, dude, of course, but <laughs> here's the thing, it, it, we're sort of making fun of science in a way, but we're also saying, oh, that's really cool, and we're excited about it, because a lot of times people will go, especially people who want to criticize the teaching of these skills at all. And I'm sure you and Tucker are seeing email after email of people who are upset that you guys exist, right? And um, that you're doing any of this. And they're like, this is a bunch of crap and give an advantageous position because you can say, actually, this is science, biatch, right? I mean, you can tell them to go fly a kite, whereas we have to collect all those articles that we find on Scientific American so that when people go, you know what, this is BS, prove it. We can go, actually, here's a bunch of things that do prove it. But dang, you know, there's still that sort of little additional part that says that doesn't explain why our drills and exercises are actually getting results. And they kind of have to see it or try it for themselves, which is 
Actually, the primary reason we give away so much information for free on this show is because otherwise people go, eh, I don't know about that. And it's like, no, go try it. Try it, get results, and then come back, and you'll, you'll believe what we're telling you finally. Yeah, you know, the laboratory of life is a perfectly valid way to sort of test different ideas. And, you know, it's not quite as well controlled as a proper kind of scientific study. And, you know, you can never get as big a sample size just going out and trying stuff as, as you know, psychologists could if they're running a study with hundreds of thousands of subjects. But if you have many, many fans doing it in parallel, right, and they're coming back and saying, hey, this really works, it's almost like a scientific study, but without kind of all the bullshit of having to get human subjects approval and having to publish it in this pretentious, dry language and and then having no more than 10 of your scientific peers actually read it. So. Right. Well, yeah, but here's on the other side of the coin to, to argue a point that other scientists would make is there's a lot of bad information that comes from just the laboratory of life. Because if you ask, if we pulled, and you know this, if we pulled 10 guys off the street right now and we said, what's attractive to women, we'd probably, one, we'd get 10 different answers, but two, most of them would probably be wrong. And it would probably be like a guy who's, you know, got big muscles and a guy who's got a lot of money. And and they're not totally wrong, but there's mm -hmm. it's a large over, oversimplification because very rarely is someone going to go, well, you know, physical stature, the ability to provide and protect is great, but, you know, other nonverbal communication and signals that that's the case among somebody who doesn't have the traditional stereotypes in place can also be quite attractive. I mean, you're never going to hear that from Joe Schmo getting his coffee at Starbucks, even if it happens to be the case. Yeah, you know, a good example of that is actually the work on how women's ovulatory cycles influence their, their preferences for certain kinds of men, certain male traits. You know, we've had thousands of years of men observing female behavior. And as far as I know, nobody before about the mid-90s ever commented that, oh, women prefer slightly more dominant, assertive, taller, more muscular guys when they're just about to ovulate and when they could potentially get pregnant. Nobody observed that. No philosopher, no scientist, no playwright, novelist, anybody. And then in my field, evolutionary psychology, we had a couple of amazing theorists who said, hey, we expect this to be the case. Let's go test it. And they found it. And, um, you know, now there's a couple hundred papers about that. But that's an example where just being exposed to the phenomenon in day-to-day in -day life did not give people any sort of shareable insights about that. Yeah, it's, and it's largely because we can't really compare notes all the time with each other, right? I'm not looking at my buddy who's a tall, muscular, super athletic guy and going, hey, man, let's talk about the last, I don't know, 50 women that we've been with or or 10 women that we've been with and talk about where they were in their menstrual cycles when we figure out they decided to sleep with us or be intimate with us. I mean, that's like an impossible amount of data sharing, even yeah. among the closest of friends, right? Because exactly. we don't even have the numbers ourselves and it's clouded by so many other factors, but it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, a woman would want somebody who's going to produce strong offspring, plain and simple, when they're looking to reproduce. But then when once that sort of phase is over, they want somebody who's going to actually stick around and be able to feed them. Yeah, exactly. Good genes versus good provider.
Yeah. And that type of thing is what leads guys to go down these weird paths of like, I've got to get jacked and use steroids so I can be as huge as possible because I just want to sleep with a lot of girls. And sometimes they might have a margin of success. And then they're calling me going, I can't hold any relationships with anybody, no matter how much I try. And it's like, because you're doing this like super alpha dog fake thing to get mm-hmm. them with you, but then you're screening in a woman who really doesn't want a long-term relationship with you at all. Exactly. And you're, yeah. make, you're deselecting yourself in this other area and telling them that in, in the context of evolutionary psychology is probably a really annoying, difficult task for somebody like you. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions you have to clear away. And, you know, there's a lot of systematic errors where men systematically misunderstand what women want and vice versa. So when I teach human sexuality to undergrads, a lot of it is sort of like, guys, here's here's the body types women actually are attracted to versus what you think they're attracted to. And the two are often quite different. So can we talk about what those might be, actually? No, I'm going to keep it a secret. Oh, crap. Well, then see you later. <laughs> Thanks for coming. Um, yeah, the, the women tend to like guys who are, you know, slender and have muscle tone, but who are basically, who look capable and athletic, but not super bulky. So, you know, women will typically say, okay, the Olympic swimmer look, um, guys who do CrossFit, guys who do... Olympic decathlons, they're not super bulky. They're just versatile athletes. That's attractive. They don't need to have super low body fat. Women don't necessarily like guys who have body fat under 8 or 10%. They just don't like guys who have a lot of abdominal fat, gut right. fat. The media loves that, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, those are the guys with super low body fat look great on the cover of Men's Health or Men's Fitness magazine, but. Um, Women actually like guys who are a little bit softer and cuddlier than that. Yeah. It's it's funny because you look at these like action heroes in the 80s and it's like Kurt Russell, right? Yeah. And you're like, what? Yeah. And I mean, yeah. he, he had push-ups, but I mean, I would have been shocked if he was really hitting like a weight room and he certainly didn't have a trainer who was teaching him how to get shredded, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you suddenly had Rambo and it was like, oh, that's what you got to look like. And then it was like Rambo and Arnold Schwarzenegger set this sort of trend and now guys are like, this is alpha. And it's like, that has no basis in science whatsoever, apparently. Yeah, I, it, it's a funny thing. I mean, the Rambo effect is basically, okay, that's what happens when pretty short, fairly narcissistic Hollywood actors have to compensate for being short by getting super ripped and low body fat, right? Sort of the Tom Cruise effect. Whereas by contrast, you know, a 50s sex icon like Gary Cooper, who started in all those Westerns, not really buff, but he was six foot three. And that's what the women knew and kind of responded to. That he was a a defender of the helpless and he was assertive and he was good with words and guns, but it, it's not like he would have won, you know, Mr. Olympia contest. Right. Smoked unfiltered cigarettes as well. Yeah. Or, you know, the James Bond of the sixties, smoke, drank, not really in that good a shape. But the women of the era loved him. Right. Now you look at Daniel Craig and he's got like an 18 pack down there. Yeah. You know, yeah. goes all the way. They they had to write a scene in where he's naked getting tortured just so they could be like, by the way, in case you missed it, this guy's ripped. Right. Yeah. Of course, having your testicles crushed by a big 
rope knot is is not actually very good for your fitness. No, I would imagine that does things to your testosterone that we don't want to get into here. Yeah. But you're writing another book with Tucker Max, which is, you know, a lot of people are thinking, wait, say that again? You're writing a book with Tucker Max? What's the book going to be about, uh, roughly? And then we'll get into some more practical takeaways. Yeah, the, the book with Tucker is going to be called Mate. Subtitle is something like The Complete Young Man's Guide to Sex, Women, and Dating. I think you should make it, you know you want to. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it'll be out from Little Brown and Company probably late 2015. And we're kind of launching it now with our website, Mating Grounds, which has its own Mating Grounds podcast. And the basic idea is teach young men everything that Tucker and I wished that we had known in high school about women, what women want, why they want it, what traits they focus on, and how to cultivate and display those traits effectively. And we're taking a very evolutionary psychology framework for it, but it's not a pop science book. It's sort of very focused on practical, actionable information about how to get your life together. So it's, you know, honestly, it's got a, a lot of overlap with what you're trying to do with um, Art of Charm in terms of the goal. Yeah, absolutely. Something tells me that once the book comes out, we're going to have it on our bookshelf probably right away. And of course, we'll have you guys coming in to do some some cool stuff with us that, you know, Tucker and I had already sort of talked about as well. And I think it's great because this show is accessible to a lot of people, but can't nobody promote a book like Tucker Max. So you're in good hands there. And also... Having the science behind it will get people, instead of going, well, you know, Jordan, I read this bullshit on the internet from this other guy who was trying to sell me an ebook, and you say this different thing, and I'm like, well, I'm giving it away, try both. You can be like, science, bitch, look at this PhD in your face, and they're like, okay, I guess I believe this guy, and I certainly believe Tucker Max, who's walked the walk with this stuff, for better or for worse, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of buffer him down a little bit and do a credible source. So that congratulations, that's no easy task. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Yeah. You know, and both both he and I have had our own now variety of different kinds of sexual relationships with women. And um, you know, I'm not exactly a virgin myself, but you know, I've had a sixteen year marriage. I've dated a lot before and after that. So and you know, now Tucker's in a fair I think exclusively monogamous relationship with a long-term girlfriend and you know he lives with his girlfriend i know that much i don't know the, yeah. the the gory deets yeah and she's great she's an awesome woman and a great mate choice like i met her and it's like dude she's got a great phenotype which is kind <laughs> of the highest the highest praise that we darwinians ever give great what does that roughly translate to phenotype just means your body brain and and behavioral quality so like if a you know, a cattle breeder will say, oh, this bull has a great phenotype. That means it's healthy, it's fit, it's got good genes, it's, you know, physically and mentally and behaviorally capable. I'm going to use that on my girl when she gets home from work. <laughs> Your phenotype be driving me crazy. Exactly. So the, the opposite, if, if you say someone's got a great genotype, is that kind of like when girls say, my friend is so fun, and you're like, she's definitely overweight, and like, no, she's got a great personality, and you're like, ah, <laughs> I see, she's got a great genotype, I get it, I gotcha. Well, if somebody had a great genotype, that means they've got amazing genetic potential in terms of their health and intelligence. And they just blew it. Personality, with... but they blew it. They just got lazy and never amounted to anything. Perfect. She's got a great genotype is the new, she's got a great personality. I love it. Yeah. That's excellent. That's even better because 
having a great personality is something that all attractive women would have, regardless of how physically attractive they are. But having a great genotype really does gloss over the obvious, right? So perfect. Yeah. I guess, yeah. well, I'm cool with having jokes that only nerds like us can understand. <laughs> That's totally acceptable. Now, what about the ovulatory cycles? We, we sort of discussed on this before. I mean, is there any practical way we can look at that or are we kind of out of luck? Because me and AJ have talked about this a lot. Like, I can sort of tell when a woman is ovulating. It's almost like the Malcolm Gladwell blank thing where you're like, I know it, but I don't know how. And if you get really close, it's sort of on their skin and maybe the way that they're dancing or something. But other than that, I've got no scientific way to do this. Do you or is it kind of like, you have to ask them slash you have to give them some sort of hormone test to make this practical. No, I think there are, you know, there's a lot of evidence now about various cues that you can use to kind of figure out whether a woman's mid-cycle just about to ovulate peak fertility, right? That's when women get most attractive and that's when women tune in most to sort of your genetic quality. Do you have a good genotype? Are you strong, fit, dominant? funny, creative, intelligent, etc. Um, for example, um, women will tend to dress more stylishly. Not necessarily sluttier, but more stylishly. They'll make more of an effort when they're at peak fertility. They'll you know, wear cooler, more up-to-date clothing. Some studies show they reveal a little more skin, more cleavage, more leg, more likely to wear higher heels, more likely to wear red. Um, certainly more makeup, more jewelry, etc. So if you're familiar with how a woman dresses like she's a she's a fellow student, she's a coworker at the same company, then if you kind of get tuned into how she tends to dress, right. then baselines. You know, yeah, the baseline. So then if if suddenly she's got like low cut top, shorter skirt, higher heels, more jewelry, wearing lipstick when she doesn't usually you know, hair up in a style, then, you know, that might be a marker for fertility. Perfect. Okay. Um, it's like lie detection almost. Exactly. Where you yeah. need a baseline. So it helps to know the woman a little bit. I guess the study I'm most famous or infamous for is the one about how lap dancers and gentlemen's clubs make higher tips when they're at peak fertility. Huh. And, uh, we recruited a bunch of lap dancers who work and they tracked their ovulatory cycles, you know, when do they menstruate for two months and they also reported their tips that they earn and they earned a lot more money, about 50 to 60% more money per shift when they were at peak fertility. So it looks like their customers are responding somehow and it's not to how they dress because they always dress equally provocatively. Right, yeah, they're strippers, they are exotic dancers, they always show tons of skin, they're always sitting in your lap grinding on your schlong, that's their job. Yeah, and they're typically not wearing perfume because the women hate, like, perfume battles in, in the gentlemen's club. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Things you'd learn <laughs> when you do a research study that involves a hundred exotic dancers or more. And, well, it helped a lot that one of my co-authors had worked as a bouncer, a doorman, and manager in, in several different uh, lap dancing clubs. So I was not personally familiar with all this, but he he kind of explained the whole industry to me. I think you're right. I think it's really funny to look at those little details, and it's you can sort of tell like which of your friends is sleazier by they're like, yeah, you know that when you walk into that, and then you get that thing happening, and you're like, that is how many clubs <laughs> have you been to where you have a, like a pattern that you've observed in the in these things? This makes no sense. 
just to be clear, when is this? Is this right before their period? Is it during their period? Is it right afterwards? What cycle is this that we're, what phase is this that we're okay, looking at? Okay, so we're, we're talking, you know, the ovulatory cycle is 28-day cycle. Day one would be menstrual, menstrual period begins. Woman starts bleeding on day, day one. Typically, bleeding lasts three to five days. Peak fertility is usually about day 14, right? So it's right in the middle of the cycle. And so when we're talking about just before ovulation or peak fertility, that's typically about days 10 to 15, where, again, day one was the beginning of menstrual bleeding. Um, and a lot of people have misconceptions about this. A lot of young women and men think, oh, you're most likely to get pregnant in the PMS period or right after menstruation. No, it's like about midway between uh, the bleeding cycles. And okay. also, you know, the lap dancers themselves had the mistaken impression that they thought that they earned the most tips when they were menstruating, which is dead wrong. They don't. But that was the sort of urban myth among even experienced lap dancers. And so do we, we don't really know why, right? We just know that it does happen. We just know that their customers are somehow, for some reason, responding. What that proves is men can detect it even if we don't know that we're doing it. Men are certainly detecting it, at least unconsciously, in right. terms of who they're choosing to have dances. And if, if the woman's on top of you for one three-minute song, do you keep buying more and more songs from her? Right. That's how the women really earn the big bucks, is not one song with each of a hundred guys. It's, you know, the few guys who keep buying like 10 or 20 dances from them. So probably they're giving off some scent cues, how they smell, how they move, what their skin looks like and feels like. But also they're talking to the guys typically for 10 to 30 minutes before the first dance. So there's a lot of verbal courtship. There's a lot of communication nonverbal interaction, eye gaze, touching, flirting, all of that. And I think that's where a lot of the information is getting conveyed is sort of the woman's attitude towards the men, how receptive they are. Okay. And so is there's not a whole lot of solid ways we can use this in dating and relating with women, unless, of course, we're in a relationship where it's totally possible to track the menstrual cycle of the girl that we're with. There's an app for that, literally. Yeah, you could do that. But I think one big takeaway is, number one, if a woman isn't into you one week, she might be more into you the next week. Don't give up because her preferences will shift a little bit. I've experienced this myself and I've seen it among tons of women and male clients at The Art of Charm as well, where for in my example, you know, I'd walk in and there'd be a girl who always was with like a guy that I considered kind of like a, I don't know, softer guy than me generally. I'm an abrasive guy, so it's it's pretty easy to go softer on the scale. And then other times, you know, she'd have a, we'd be out or something like that in law school, she's my class and like, you know, we'd be out or, or doing something at an event and it was like, Suddenly it was on and she she would be like, your jawline is really masculine. And I remember thinking, that's a weird ass thing to say. But, yeah. you know, 2020 hindsight, eight years later, she was probably hardcore, you know, right in the middle of the, the ovulation period. And she was just looking for that type of thing. And then she would go back to the guy who, you know, wore pink hot pants for the rest of, of the month. 
Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's now a lot of studies showing that at peak fertility, women are more attracted to masculine facial features, big jaw, deep set eyes, big brows, uh, big nose. So if you have those distinctive features, you know, be aware that they might only be attractive to women at a certain phase of the cycle. On the other hand, if you're kind of baby faced or you've got a slightly feminine features, then again, ovulating women might not be that into you, but a week earlier, a week later, they might be. Excellent. And so we just, you got to catch them at the right time, like Pokemon. Yeah. The other thing is it matters a lot whether women are using hormonal contraception, like the pill, the patch, yeah. or the implant. I've heard about this. And, and so that changes their perception. And, and it's, there's advice that says, hey, ladies, don't pick a man until you go off birth control for a while yeah. and reset your, your stuff. Because you can go on birth control and you're all happy and fun and then you try to conceive and you're having a baby and you're like, this guy? The hell was I thinking, right? Exactly, yeah. So I think that's a big deal that, you know, women should be wary about choosing a long-term partner if they're on the pill because what will often happen is uh, they'll pick a guy who seems sweet and nice when they're on the pill because the pill basically convinces your body and your brain that you're pregnant. And what do pregnant women want? Safety, security, niceness, peace. They're not that into, like, does he have good genes? But then if the, that woman goes off the pill, starts to ovulate, starts to get those ovulatory preferences, wants the height, the muscles, the masculine face, the assertiveness, the dominance, suddenly you can be, oh my God, repulsively wimpy. And she'll start to think, yeah, I don't know, you seemed... Like a great boyfriend, but now I just feel towards you like uh, I don't like I feel towards a brother, right? Not sexually attractive, right. just oh, you're my safe, cuddly friend zone guy now. Interesting, and so we need to keep an eye on that and definitely look at whatever phase she's in right then. You know, when you meet her, fine and good, but when you're starting to take the relationship a little bit more seriously and before it's really serious, you want to you, you kind of want to finally balance this between getting trapped because of sunk cost, right? Well, we've been dating for like a year. You yeah. know, you don't want to get you don't want to get that cuz then you'll rationalize your way into something more serious when you shouldn't be. So basically, you kind of want to like make that first few impressions, those first few dates, once you start becoming intimate, knock off the birth control, the hormonal contraceptives anyway. At that time, use other forms because otherwise You'll just trick yourselves right into the poorhouse with, you know, getting married to somebody that you're not a match for. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, a lot of guys aren't really clear on the difference between the pill versus the IUD, but they have completely different effects on female psychology. Um, the IUD still allows ovulation. The pill doesn't. And that's a massive difference. Really? Um, so the I IUD check pill, no. Yeah, I mean, the IUD allows ovulation but prevents implantation if you get a fertilized egg. So it's a whole different mechanism. But a woman with an IUD is still cycling normally. She's still having these peak fertility interests in kind of the bad boy or the, the alpha male or the good genes guy. Excellent. We might want to tweak our strategies based on whether we're the good genes guy or the great provider softy guy regardless of whether or not we want to admit we're one of those two guys or not. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, also in the bedroom, it helps to be aware of these cycle effects because what a woman wants in terms of how a guy treats her sexually 
will vary. Like one week she might want, you know, tender, intimate sex. The next week she might want it a lot rougher and a lot more domination. Um, and that is that should not be surprising to guys, but I think a lot of guys don't have the flexibility to kind of go with what the woman wants and, and they get confused. Like, oh, well, last week you didn't want this kinky thing and now you do and like why that seems fickle it's not fickle it's adaptive huh interesting well for example if a woman's at peak fertility she might want a guy to be a lot more sort of dominant and assertive and rough in bed oh i see and right, th right. that's not her not knowing what she wants it's her wanting different things at different times exactly yeah yeah perfect yeah Excellent. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And every guy who's been in a relationship with somebody for long enough knows that that changes all of the time uh, yeah. throughout the relationship and not just in the beginning towards more towards the end. Um, we talked a little bit in the pre-interview about the art of being attractive to people and you know, biological roots of, of music, style, conspicuous consumption. I mean, a lot of things people don't normally consider when attracting women what are, how do those things figure in i mean obviously clothing design art things like that but when i think of conspicuous consumption or or luxury goods and things like that I, you know most people just think oh well she's a gold digger if she wants those things or like nah normal people normal girls don't care about those things i mean is that true or is that just a societal construct but really we do look at those things i think we're we're very confused about this. I mean, it, I did a whole book called Spent Sex Evolution and Consumer Behavior about um, mating in relation to economics and work and spending patterns and all of that. And the basic idea in Spent was that a lot of what we buy in terms of goods and services are not really about giving us pleasure or utility. They're not really about improving our lives. They're about signaling things to other people particularly to potential mates, signaling what kind of person we are, how smart we are, what kind of personality we have, what kind of social circles we travel in. And this is well known to marketers, but it's not that well known to a lot of consumers. And where guys go wrong is they think, oh, women are all gold diggers, they just want rich men. But they don't understand that for a lot of women, the money isn't the point. The money is just a way that guys can empower themselves to display what kind of guy they are more effectively, right? So, okay. for example, if you've got the money to buy whatever kind of car you want, then you can, you know, you can buy a Lamborghini if you're into that. You can buy a BMW 7 Series if you're into that. You can buy a, you know, a Tesla. You've got a broader range of choices, and each choice you make will indicate something about your values, your taste, your personality traits. If you're a poor guy, you might just have to take whatever junk car your parents don't want to drive anymore, and it won't reflect your personality traits very accurately. So for me, money is just a way to empower you to signal certain things. It's not really It's not the signal itself. itself. Right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's not. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting because a lot of guys think that it is the signal itself. So they're constantly 
showcasing things that they think, you know, and there's all these weird, like, anecdotal, like, women notice watches, and it's like, yeah, but they might not notice that it's a $20,000 watch or a $90 watch. Yeah, and exactly. They, they'll, like, women notice your shoes, and it's like, well, yeah, they don't need to be Louis Vuitton shoes, they could just not be dirty. Yeah, and, you know, we, we've actually done a, um, a survey on women's attitudes towards, you know, what kind of shoes a guy should wear on a first date. We polled 500 women on Mechanical Turk, Amazon Mechanical Turk, and the results are very, very clear. Things like don't wear flip-flops or Crocs or Vibram five-toed shoes or crazy, crazy shit like that. But basically, any decent classical leather shoe is attractive to women. And we found there's basically zero correlation between the shoe's cost and its attractiveness to women as long as it's a classically styled leather shoe. Excellent. Wow. So that's great news for a lot of people who are listening right now who don't want to buy $200 shoes just so they can impress girls. Yeah. In fact, the highest rated shoe, I think, was only about you know 80 bucks. It's not a sneaker, right? It's sort of a date shoe. Yeah. I don't wear sneakers except to the gym, and I've, I've recommended on this show that other guys don't either because even guys are, who are like, no, I like sporty chicks. It's like, well, that's great. If you meet them at the gym, they're going to expect you to wear sneakers. But if you show up, pick her up for the first date, and you're not going hiking, which you might if you're into sporty chicks, but if you're going somewhere formal, first, second, third, fifth date for that matter, you, you should at least know how to dress because even the sportiest of women wants to know that you're going to be able to put on clothes that aren't sweaty at some point in your relationship. Yeah, and she wants to see that you're making an effort. That's a key thing. You made an effort. You didn't wear the stuff you wear around the house or that you wear when you're going to the garbage dump. Excellent. Yeah, going because we go to the garbage dump. I mean, how do we still attract people even if we're poor? What if we can't afford, what if, you know, you're listening right now, you're in college or you're in high school for that matter, or you're just broke. You know, what can we do to maximize our chances here? And on the on the converse I'm going to go with in a second is how do you not scare people away if you're too wealthy? Because I know that sounds ridiculous, but it does happen, especially if you're wearing your wealth in a very conspicuous way and not in a very, the wealthiest guys in San Francisco wear hoodies that come from Neiman Marcus and you wouldn't even notice, right? But they still wear hoodies. Yeah. I think, you know, taste, aesthetic taste can go a really long way. If you, if you develop good taste, um, that can substitute a lot for wealth because there's a lot of guys who work 70 hour weeks to get massive incomes and don't even bother spending half an hour a week figuring out how to spend it sensibly and tastefully. Right. So they end up with these apartments that look like American psycho apartment, right. Full of this alienating modernist creepy stuff. And they dress like, whatever their dad used to dress or the way that they think rich guys are supposed to dress, but they don't actually know anything about how to find clothes that fit or how to take care of clothes or how to match colors or patterns or, or textures. So, you know, if you invest a little bit in your aesthetic education, understanding clothing construction and fit and style, that can go a long way and you can, we can literally shop in a thrift store and get shirts for five bucks and trousers for 10 bucks. And as long as they're decent quality and good fit, you can look great. Excellent. There's a lot there, right? Because 
a lot of guys are thinking, oh, okay, now I just need to look like I, I have my stuff together. And a lot of what we recommend is similar, is something similar. Go to the Gap or wherever you get your collared shirt and then have it tailored for like 25 bucks, And it'll look like a $75, $100 shirt versus going to try to buy a fancy shirt that still doesn't fit you and costs you $175 and is still baggy in the chest. Yeah, I, you know, I've realized, for example, for me, Uniqlo, the Japanese company Uniqlo, makes really well-tailored, nicely-fitting stuff that's really cheap. And particularly if you've got a good shoulder-to-waist ratio, a good V-shaped torso, you know, slim fit from Uniqlo works, works really well. But also, as you say, you can get anything tailored for a lot less than most luxury brands cost. Uniqlo is a great place. You just have to have the right body type for it, right? Yeah, yeah. It's funny you should mention that because there's a lot of like rappers and things are kind of the stereotype of like, ugh, this guy made a ton of money and look at the way he spends his money. It's insane. It's yeah. so distasteful and so tacky that they made a TV show about it called Cribs, which is impressive to a small percentage of the population and just a joke to everybody else who watches it. Yeah, and a joke to, you know, most intelligent women would not want those houses. And if you see the kind of groupies that those guys attract, you know, they're not typically the kind of woman you'd really want as sort of a, a serious girlfriend. Right, yeah, to say the least, of course. Uh, now, what about things like language? I mean, does this figure into your calculations as well? Because we talk a lot about, you know, online dating, texting, messaging people, emailing people, first date conversations. These are some of the most common questions that people ask, and yet... There's not a whole lot of information out there. That's one of the things we focus on the most is because there's so much bad information out there or it's just a big black box that people ignore. Yeah, I think, you know, the the unique thing about humans is verbal courtship. We have this this language stuff that no other species has, and it's incredibly powerful for communicating beliefs and desires and intentions and past and future to other people. Um, and my first book, The Mating Mind, was largely focused on, you know, the evolution of language and creativity and humor and how we display our intelligence through language during courtship to get people to fall in love with us. So I think verbal courtship is absolutely central to humans. Um, it's not taught in, in schools, as you know. A lot of what we need to do, you know, both with like your site, Art of Charm, and what we're doing with, with Mating Grounds and the Mate book is kind of remedial education for verbal courtship. And, you know, it, it matters a lot because women can gain a huge amount of information about who you are, how smart you are. Literally, they, they sort of unconsciously judge your IQ from things like your grammar, your vocabulary size, your verbal fluency, how much stuff you know, um, how well you express yourself, your level of articulacy. And that's really compelling to women. Guys who sort of, you know, go on to OkCupid and message a bunch of random women going, hey, you know, DTF, how are you doing, babe? Don't get good responses. And they seem to be baffled about why not. Yeah, that's an example of, of course, the worst, but even guys then who write a paragraph about themselves don't get good responses either, generally speaking, because they're over-investing and it doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, and you know, there's 
the new book Dataclism that's out from the founder of OKCupid where he analyzes a lot of the uh, the big data results from his his website. It's fascinating, like the you know the messages that are kind of most efficient in terms of getting women to respond are typically like 100 to 200 characters and not not much more than that. But within those 100 characters, if you can show, I read the woman's profile carefully, I get her, I understand what she's looking for, I can offer that, you know, that's very powerful. Yeah, I think that makes, there's a lot of sense there. That's a whole new show in and of itself, of course. I want to wrap with a misconception that I've smashed down many a time on this show, but it always helps to have another voice, especially a scientific voice. There's this alpha male, beta male distinction that is all over the the manosphere, all over the web, and it's very simplistic, it's very misleading, and it applies to apes a hell of a lot more than it applies to humans, at least in our current evolutionary form. And guys keep leaning on this so hard, just misunderstanding the way that human status works in terms of you know physical dominance and the way that they sort of are a presence, an aggressive presence in any sort of social situation. And it depends on things outside of that. I mean, it seems like a much wider array of traits, and some of these overlap. Do you, can you speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I think it's it's hilarious when people actually misquote, you know, my mating mind book as if I support some kind of alpha male model of prehistoric, dominant, strong men having harems of multiple women. That's not at all what I advocate. The alpha male model is great for gorillas. It works perfectly for gorillas. It doesn't even work for chimpanzees or bonobos, our two most closely related apes. And in humans, we have we're, we're not really a species that runs on physical dominance. We're a species that runs on social status and respect and gossip and prestige and fame and how much other people like us, respect us, um, can benefit from mutual interactions. You know, we get status through friendships, not through beating people up, typically. And so I think the whole alpha male rhetoric leads guys to kind of over focus on things like, oh, I got to get in shape and bulk up and learn, you know, MMA and stuff like that. And it leads them to neglect the real sources of status, which are things like, how many female friends do I have who like me and, and have friends who might want to meet me? How many male friends do I have who I can learn stuff from and do fun activities with? How well connected to my extended family am I? And to people they know, um, how famous am I? Am I out there in public doing improv comedy or playing guitar or doing cool stuff in public that that's attractive to women? None of that relates to the alpha male stereotype. That's not the way to become King Kong if you're a gorilla. But that's the way that human status operates. So what do we do with that information? I mean, do we stop worrying about who's, you know, benching more weight? I mean, how do we get rid of sort of the Jersey Shore vibe and use this to our advantage? Do we just stop freaking worrying about it? Is that the key? Yeah, I think stop stop worrying about your formidability, how intimidating physically you are. It helps to be in good shape, of course. Women are attracted to guys who are in good shape. But you can get in good shape with 
five minutes of kettlebells and, and push-ups and body weight exercises every morning. You know, you don't, you don't have to do much more than that. If you eat right, eat paleo, don't eat carbs and sugar and drink sodas, you know, you'll get in good shape. What guys should focus on is, you know, extend your social network, make friends, make allies, find mentors, um, build your skills that are attractive and impressive to women. Conversation, dance, sense of style, um, art, music. Can you draw a portrait of a woman on paper with a pencil? That's attractive. Can you sing a song to her? That's attractive. Are you good in bed? That's attractive. So don't worry about trying to intimidate other guys because fortunately we live in a peaceful society where male versus male violent competition is pretty rare and not that important. Perfect. Thank you so much. I, I appreciate your time. I appreciate the science and I appreciate the effort. What can guys, is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to include? I think, you know, in closing, I would just say it's up to every guy to take charge of his mating life and to devote, you know, at least a few hours a week to building his attractiveness as a guy to women and not to spend all his time being in kind of workaholic career building mode where you're basically increasing your value to future employers or to marketers, but not to women. Right. So don't be deluded that just being a good worker and consumer is automatically going to make you attractive to women. You actually have to figure out what women want and build the skills that specifically appeal to them, which are different from the skills taught in the American educational system and are different from the skills that corporate America wants you to develop. Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Jeff Miller. And where can guys find more from you? Basically, go to our Mating Grounds uh, website. Just Google Mating Grounds. And uh, if you want, want to find me at University of New Mexico, just Google my name, Jeffrey with a G, Miller. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks Great a lot, stuff. Jordan. Great to be on. Of course, I love, love, love how the art of charm is often ahead of science. That makes me so happy. Body types of guys that are more attractive, you know, you think about it, but you never really put your finger quite on it. Reading ovulatory cycles, that could have been more practical, but you know what? We, we can only do what we can do. And if you're in a relationship, forget about it. Just track it. Use an app. There's definitely an app for that. I'm sure some guys are doing that right now. We'll see to what degree. Email me if you're doing that. Let me know how that's going for you. Again, Jordan at theartofcharm.com. Of course, a scientific decision on which shoes to wear on a first date. Let's see how your anecdotal evidence stacks up to the science. And last but not least, language and human courtship. We talk about this a lot on the show. We briefly touched on it here, and I hope you guys found it somewhat helpful, if not enlightening. As usual, show feedback and guest suggestions can go right to me, Jordan at theartofcharm.com. I love hearing from you guys good or bad. And of course, I love to hear who you want to hear on the show. And if you enjoyed this one, don't forget to thank Dr. Miller on Twitter. We're going to have his Twitter linked in the show notes. Live training and boot camp details at theartofcharm.com. And if you guys are listening, but you're not subscribed, friggin' and subscribe already. This is the best way to make sure you don't miss anything. Get it delivered to your phone. You can go to iTunes and do that, Stitcher and do that, wherever you're listening to this show and do that. And of course, we have our iPhone and Android apps available at theartofcharm.com slash iPhone and slash Android, respectively. Give us a review if you feel so inclined, but definitely tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So have a great week, go out there and get social and leave everything and everyone better than you found him. 
Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and everything for the extraordinary man at theartofcharmpodcast.com. 